Welcome to Skeptics, the show where we take a deep dive into the world of tech news and research. I'm Josh. And I'm Nayana, and we're back after a summer break. Yeah. Um, Josh and I have, yeah, we are excited for the new season of the show. Um, and to that end, we have a few exciting things coming up this term, including, as of today, a couple of new guests. Uh, so this term, we'll be bringing on a few more people into the podcast to talk about their research. These will all be OAI researchers or friends of the OAI. And today we have uh, Hannah Kirk and Paul Rotger with us to talk to us about hate speech and detecting hate speech using AI. Hi guys, how are you doing? Hello, pretty good. Pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just so that Hannah and Paul are both uh, DPhil students here at the OAI and also um, both part of Rewire, which is a yeah. company which we'll let them uh, tell us a bit about. Um, but yeah, first of all, um, just wanted to get a sense really of the broad area in which you both work and what the overlap is really between, between your research agendas. So I've been working on hate speech for about the past year. Uh-huh. Um, didn't come from a computational background or really a pure social science background, but I thought hate speech was kind of a nice marriage between definitely a task that is of really high societal importance, but has a lot to be gained from um, using AI or something that can help understand the, understand it at scale. Um, so last year, mainly worked on hate speech, did some stuff in different forms of hate speech, um, emojis, memes, mm. very like internet culturey, buzzwordy. Um, I really enjoyed last year going home and telling my parents <laughs> that I joined the Internet Institute and now work on emoji and memes. Um, and then this year I've transitioned a little bit to work slightly more generally on uh, value alignment and safety issues in large language models. Cool, really interesting. How about you, Paul? Tell us about your research. Yeah, so I came to Oxford about three years ago now. I'm in the final stages of my PhD, and most of that I spent working on hate speech and the many challenges that come with trying to detect it using AI models. So I think my research covered quite a lot of different ground, kind of picking out some of the big challenges that I mm-hmm. found most interesting and, and important. So I worked on um, basically evaluating models, kind of finding biases and, and kind of critical weaknesses in them, worked on language change, on um, subjectivity in hate speech, which obviously like there's a lot of, and um, most recently then on uh, data efficient hate speech detection for multilingual um, applications. But yeah very broad overview. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, thanks for that overview. I think obviously it's a subject which I'm sure many people who listen will be um, familiar with in, in, in one way or another, either being a, uh, having been targeted by it or just being aware that hate speech is a, is a problem online. And obviously you've both mentioned there in your answers the use of AI techniques to actually detect hate speech potentially and, and to do something with it. Um, so yeah, I guess the question for maybe you to start with, Hannah, is like, what are the, ch- let's let's get the Let's get the best possible case for AI. You know, what, are the, what is the real upside of using AI? What are the main features of AI that make it really attractive as a potential tool to tackle hate speech online? So I think one of the biggest problems of hate speech and content moderation in general is like dealing with the immense volume of just stuff that's on the internet and I guess the speed at which the, that content kind of turns over. Mm. Um, so if you're sitting in a trust and safety team at Meta or Twitter it's just not feasible to even look at a fraction of that content with kind of curated human oversight um, or human moderators. So one of the biggest reasons people turn to AI is scale. Like Mm -hmm. obviously an AI model can make predictions over thousands or millions of pieces of content, just at a level that we just can't do anymore with human moderation. I think in the early days, 
kind of thinking about different internet structures like Reddit, that it was possible to do a slightly more community-based moderation, a little bit more handcrafted and tailored to that specific community, but with the types of interactions, the speed of them, the volume of them that we're seeing on Twitter or Facebook, it's just impossible mm -hmm. to, to monitor it. So scale's one big thing. I personally think there's something else interesting about AI, which is, yes, it has weaknesses, yes, it has biases, but at least it's kind of got some reproducibility. Mm -hmm. So the same piece of content filtered through the same AI model should give us the same exact kind of numerical score. Um, and that's something which is a problem because it kind of hard codes biases or weaknesses mm -hmm. into that score, but also could be seen as a little bit of a, a, a strength or at least in contrast to like humans being inconsistent or fallible in how they rate and moderate content. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that intuition I'm right in saying is behind the work that, that you both do with, with Rewire. Um, yeah, that's a big part of it. Yeah, so, so maybe to give a bit of context, Rewire is a startup that um, I started with a colleague and former OII student um, Bertie Vidjan, mm -hmm. uh, who most recently was head of online safety at the Turing, where also both Hannah and I work, but Hannah still works. Um, and this was about one and a half years ago. We wanted to take some of the things that we found in our research into practice. We had been working on evaluating hate speech models and found some really embarrassing weaknesses, frankly, in a lot of the commercial tools that were out there. Mm. And we have been working on these ways of improving hate speech detection models through um, kind of iterative retraining. And then we thought, okay, if we bring these two together, then we already have like something that works extremely well, likely works a lot better than any kind of commercial tool for content moderation that's out there right now. So so I'd say that's how it started. Um, and, and all of the reasons that Hannah gave for why AI is important, an important component at least of any content moderation system. Um, that was certainly a big motivation. I would say that since then we've kind of tried to broaden our focus a little bit. So, I mean, we're here today to talk specifically about hate speech and AI. I think that's still something that I'm really kind of interested in at the mm -hmm. core. It's a really important application. But um, by now we're thinking a bit more broadly around like community health and growth and managing that which extends then into other forms of toxic content but also other forms of kind of positive content and just how do you build like a strong and, and like an awesome online community really um, yeah. and that can be one part of it so so just mm. for context yeah. I think that that is basically where rewire is at now yeah. that's really interesting um, you mentioned something like some of the embarrassing gaps maybe that you noticed when you first started rewire what kind of things if you're able to tell us yeah. that existed out there. Yeah, so so this was based on um, work that I did, kind of the, the first PhD article actually that I wrote and, and Bertie was one of the co-authors there along with my supervisors and some people and kind of in the touring yeah. um, cosmos. And we basically constructed this test suite of what's called functional tests, like little data sets that were targeting very specific functionalities of hate speech detection mm -hmm. models. So different kinds of hate different kinds of non-hate that maybe to a machine look a bit like hate because they, they use some of the same language. And with that test suite, um, we then tested a whole bunch of models. Um, and in some of the commercial tools, for example, we found that they were extremely sensitive to mentions of identity terms. So mm. every time the word gay was mentioned, right. um, the model would be a lot more likely to flag it as hateful. Um, mm. And that was even more pronounced when it came to stuff like um, reclaimed slurs, which 
can be yeah. hateful in a lot of ways, like the N-word, for example, mm -hmm. um, but can also really be quite positive when used by those communities who have reclaimed and reappropriated them as, as a positive signal. Mm. Um, so th those two things, I would say, were like big red flags. Like if, we, if you were using these models in the wild, you would be flagging and potentially removing and mm -hmm. undermining like really innocuous or positive mm. content even and you'd probably be harming those exact people that you're trying mostly to protect with the systems um, because they are the ones who are targeted uh, by hate in the first place. That's really interesting. I feel like in this room maybe I'm the person who knows the least about AI and hate speech but I guess I do know about you know what it's like to be online <laughs> and language maybe but that kind of suggests that how important context is mm. in these cases like the difference between two members of the same community saying something to each other versus someone saying that to someone outside the community. Um, you've also talked maybe a little bit about, you've been working on Rewire for one and a half years, you've been doing your PhD for a few years now, both of you maybe have been working on this. What kind of stuff has changed in that, in that time in this, in this field? Um, have there been any kind of, you know, what are the kind of big changes? What's working better today? What's maybe still not, not as far along perhaps as we'd like it to be? I think, yeah, just to start, I think there's a couple big things which some of my work has touched on as well. Um, a lot of people now in the NLP communities are talking more about processing information from like multiple modalities because it's such a critical part of like mm. how we perceive and live in the world as humans. So, you know, we don't just understand objects and contexts through language. We also have audio and video and uh, images so a lot of people now are thinking about these issues of content moderation and other kind of language understanding tasks through the lens of what's called multimodality, um, which would be looking at, for example, hateful memes as an example that's come up in the past couple of years, where we need a model that can simultaneously process the signal from the image mm -hmm. and from the text and know how they combine. Because I think there's a really good example, the Facebook hateful memes challenge where they construct this data set of essentially the same image with two contrasting texts on top of it can make two very different memes. So the example is, uh, if you think of a picture of a skunk and it's like, look how nice you smell today, that's a pretty like mean meme. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's a picture of a rose and it's like, look how nice you smell today, like that's friendly and nice. Um, so kind of interpreting these messages from multiple mediums is something that is getting more focused and also the models in that area are getting better as well. Um, Paul, I don't know whether you have any... No, I think that's, that's really one of the big things that people are talking about now. Mm. And maybe just because I'm writing up the thesis <laughs> at the moment, I need to kind of narrativize a lot around like, <laughs> how the field has moved and what yeah. I've done. And, Great. and I think um, if, if I had to kind of summarize that, like people are now paying a lot more attention to much more detailed topics, kind of more granular topics within this big, big field of hate speech research. Um, than they were even just two or three years ago. So I think this is like a really exciting moment for us to be doing that kind of research because it used to be four or five years ago when, when this research was kind of in its infancy that people were just focused. It was kind of a computer science approach, mm -hmm. taking a task and trying to optimize a task, um, taking methods from other tasks without really questioning what is so special about hate speech yeah. Like I think that has been quite a big shift that that we've moved away a little bit from just chasing kind of high level accuracy accuracy figures and having a much better sense of what 
the potential problems are, what we need to watch out for. And obviously there's a lot of work to be done still, but it just feels like there's now much more room for really more specialized research within Definitely. This. And as you say, obviously the, the research field itself has moved forward in that time, but of course also the the thing that's sort of chasing the nature of hate speech, as you say, it also changes through modalities and also through new platforms. Um, there's a couple of ways we could go with this. One way, what this came to go is, obviously, the, I think one of the elephants in the room is TikTok, right? This massively popular social network, which is very much video-based mm-hmm. and also has some questions, I think, around it with respect to data privacy. And which we talked a lot about, about a lot. on our platform. So I suppose, without pushing necessarily on, on TikTok, but how, how can we maybe create more robust systems that can more flexibly scale to like a whole new platform or a whole new mode of communication such as something like TikTok. Does anyone have TikTok? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm always bringing up TikTok on the thing on the um on the show because I really enjoy it. Like <laughs> I know it's probably got a lot of problems with it, but it is really enjoyable and so maybe more so than other platforms I'm like, oh I see why people are using TikTok. I see why people are going to TikTok. It does feel sometimes more playful than a lot of platforms necessarily allow for. I, uh, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge of TikTok. I did download it during the pandemic and I immediately got so addicted, I was like out. Um, but I you, you made a good decision there, probably. <laughs> my master's thesis in Beijing a couple of years ago on like the TikTok recommendation mm. algorithm. Mm. And maybe we can circle back to hate speech and mm. content moderation in a minute. But essentially how it was just so revolutionary in how quickly it could mm-hmm. learn your preferences. So obviously Netflix, YouTube, they have like much more time even if that's in the scale of minutes mm-hmm. to learn your preferences whereas TikTok it's like the next videos are loading mm-hmm. immediately and it's such like a fast-paced feed um I think there's also been reports right of like people quite quickly getting into rabbit holes on mm-hmm. TikTok and how like tightly it can learn like a very narrow space yeah I think that probably has relevancy for how people are doing content moderation on TikTok too because um, you are getting these like polarized bubbles, which mm-hmm. maybe reduces kind of the, I guess, the effectiveness of like user flagging mechanisms mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. of like different communities coming across different types of content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that the other aspect of that as well is data access for researchers like yourselves who actually yeah. doing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when a new platform comes along, yeah. platforms don't get big by being ethical necessarily, uh, or by being willing to share data with, with researchers or anyone else. So I know there's there's some provision, I think, in, in new European legislation to actually oblige really large platforms to, to share their data, but I guess that's another big challenge for, for people that you're actually trying to unpack what a, what a new platform might involve. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think that is true for almost every major platform yeah. in speech research so far has focused almost exclusively on text, and yeah. most of that text comes from Twitter, just yeah. by virtue of Twitter being, yeah. relatively speaking, quite good to work yeah. with as a researcher. I think that, that does deserve some credit. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that TikTok has specifically has announced kind of a research access program, but they've been very vague about what mm. that means or when that would kind of go live. Um, I think this is exactly like one of the biggest problems when it comes to multimodal kind of image and video based um, hate speech research that we simply don't have the data sets. Mm. It's much more difficult to define what is a hateful video or a hateful image yeah. in, in comparison to text where we can at least look towards legal standards in the first place. Um, but then it's also at the moment basically impossible to collect this kind of data at scale. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I am certain that 
Instagram and that TikTok, you know, they've got huge teams working on this internally, mm. but the research, I think, is, is years behind right. that yeah. just because there is no data, really. Mm -hmm. worth, worth saying as well, in kind of the process of labeling up data, one of the things I was thinking about a lot last year is kind of the harms that come from the actual building of these AI systems, mm -hmm. not just their mistakes or errors in deployment. Um, and annotating text, hateful text is one thing. I know Paul and I have both spent hours mm. poring over tweets, doing expert annotation or error analyses or trying to understand the data, even when you're just coding sometimes, right? And you're like showing <laughs> showing the data frame in your code, you, mm. you see a lot of like hateful text. And it can be pretty like psychologically shocking mm. to like see a lot of yeah. that stuff a lot of the time. Um, and there's definitely... A lot of literature that suggests, you know, it's even worse for content moderators mm. who work with um, images or videos because it is so much more of like a shocking, visual, yeah. yeah. exactly, medium. Mm. So I think in terms of research as well, it's very hard to find publicly available data sets of images and videos for any kind of online harm, really, whether it's self-harm and suicide, mm. ideation or extremism or... We're, we're a bit limited by yeah. what's open source. Yeah. And maybe that's a good thing. I was actually going to ask on that kind of note relating, relating to content moderation. Um, I was at a talk yesterday at the OII about caste and technology and um, sort of the relationship that, you know, in India and maybe also outside of India, caste hate speech is, is huge. It's a really massive part of what hate speech constitutes. How do you kind of... Um, you know, but it's, it can be difficult, I suppose, for content moderators to necessarily be able to identify this. These are such culturally specific points, uh, even though it applies to billions of people. Um, these aren't things that we can necessarily conceive of outside our own bubble or wherever we are. So how do you kind of apply these aspects of culture and context and what is hate speech or what is, you know, the number one hate speech issue in a certain country or in a certain community? They're the ones that we know of because we see them in the news in the UK. And then there are the ones that we have no concept of. We don't even know what that would look like if that would to be hate speech. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's a really important point and a big challenge in any kind of multilingual hate speech research. I think it is a fool's errand to try and mm. compare like for like hate in different yeah. languages because it is so specific to the mm. kind of cultural and language context, mm. as you said, that I can't simply take an English and a Hindi data set and say like, oh, I'm 70% accurate on English yeah. and 60% on Hindi and doing better on English. Mm. Basically, that comparison never works. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what that means in practice, I think, for, for people trying to do this kind of research and like building data sets mm -hmm. is, you know, don't, don't get English annotators to... to annotate yeah. automated translations of content in the language yeah. that you're actually interested in. Like, you need to have people... Um, on the ground with mm. the kind of experience to, to make these kind of distinctions, um, doing the labeling work, but also informing the creation of the kind of research design and the guidelines kind of from, from day one, you need to bring them into the fold. Um, mm. If you're doing this as a researcher, like, I mean, both of us kind of mm. coming into this space mm. um, from, with, with an outside perspective. Mm. Definitely. No, I, think, I feel like we've we've um, laid the gauntlet down to, to platforms to be more more forthcoming data to involve more more people with more perspectives in research. What what could and what should we ask policymakers for? Maybe a more difficult question, but there's a lot of debate in the UK and elsewhere about online safety, online harms, and this kind of feels like there's a back and forth really between um, different different perspectives on on what the law should do. But 
from your perspectives, what what should policy, public policymakers be doing to try to maybe improve mm. the the lot of, of content moderation to keep people safe online? I think one of the biggest things that I've been thinking about uh, within the work that I do at the Turing, we've been focusing a lot on the online safety bill. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that struck me about that bill and kind of its earlier iterations, and hopefully this is now kind of being ironed out mm. in its current form, is mushing all of online safety under mm. one big umbrella um, and particularly problematic in my view was like mushing together illegal content like mm. CSAM material, terrorist material with a very vaguely defined grey area of content mm. which I think on the bill legal but harmful yeah. but I also heard it called lawful but awful um, <laughs> which I quite like. Yeah that's um, pretty cool. <laughs> but you know that was so vaguely defined and it's just very hard for platforms to be able to implement that mm. when we actually look for the kind of the technological translation of that vague definition in the law into the types of AI tools maybe that we're used to building from the back end. I mean, Paul, maybe you want to raise the stuff about subjectivity and how we iron out some subjectivity, but at the end of the day, it just wasn't clearly defined enough for mm. like a legal system. So a bit more clarity on where that line draws and how we yeah. distinguish between there's illegal content and legal but harmful. Yeah, I think that kind of plays into one of a demand that I would make in a way, <laughs> which is around more transparency when it comes to content moderation guidelines. Mm-hmm. Because as, as Hannah alluded to, part of my kind of more, more recent research was about um, understanding the difference between kind of asking people what they think is hate speech and telling them, here's what we define hate speech mm-hmm. as, now apply that definition. Um, mm. And there's a huge discrepancy. Uh, like people have very different opinions about and different kind of beliefs. There's no inherently like invalid beliefs. Some we accept mm. more than others, rightfully so. There's kind of legal standards and there's social norms. But at the end of the day, there is all this disagreement. And if we want to resolve this, then we have to be extremely explicit, or maybe not resolve it, but if we a way forward for a content moderation system is to be extremely explicit about where it draws those lines so that even if you disagree with the line, yeah. you know where the line was drawn. So you can you can kind of yeah. call it out, you can hold it on, in, uh, mm. to account. And I think that is not something that is really happening mm. right now mm. to, to a sufficient extent. We really, like, there are internal guidelines... We, we know this for a fact. I mean, we're building these systems kind of with an outside view, with a different commercial view, but within the platforms as well, they, they have to have very detailed guidelines to um, make judgments on all kinds of borderline content. Um, mm-hmm. And more transparency around that would just give a really good basis for discussion, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. That's such a great point. And I think I wanted to talk maybe briefly about what you mentioned earlier with maybe the new move that Rewire has been thinking about um, you talked about like things like community building, for example, or looking beyond just the, the current scope of what you're doing. Um, what kind of things are you, are you looking at then? What, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to build community in this space? Um, what kind of, yeah, what kind of direction are you, are you hoping this goes in? Right, yeah. I mean, the, the big shift for us in terms of the work we do to some extent has been focusing more on the platforms where most people are today, the really big platforms, which have internal online safety teams that implement maybe some kind of, you know, a minimum standard. We know these systems aren't perfect, but they're there. Mm -hmm. And that's where most people are. 
So our approach now is to more kind of work with the people who have communities on these platforms, whether yeah. that's kind of content creators or brands or even just like people like yeah. you and I, and give them the tools to have more control mm. about like what they interact with, to have a better sense of what their like community, if we're thinking in the kind of content creator sense, what their fans are doing, what mm. they're talking about, um, and to be able to react to stuff that is maybe toxic that you want to like basically bring a bit of that community management and maybe community moderation that Hannah talked about when it comes to Reddit, mm. um, bring that onto the big platforms as well. Um, and because we believe that that is ultimately how you grow like a, yeah. a healthy and kind of a thriving community. Mm. Um, yeah. Maybe one day I'll have enough fans to rewise product myself. Not sure my community. Do I even have a community? But yeah, that's such a great, That's I, I love that. And I'm so in awe of all the stuff that you do because you know, when you talked about kind of multimodality, it made me think about how impossible it is to even tell whether something, sometimes, you know, you can't tell if something's hateful or you can't tell what the intent behind it is or you can't tell because there's text-based, there's image-based, there's audio-based, there's, as we said, there's this sort of all these new platforms coming up that we have no concept of. It feels like such a huge, huge task, but such an important one. Mm. Um, Did you want to... Well, I was just maybe going to end with saying... So let's look ahead maybe five years. We've covered like kind of new platforms, maybe new legislation as well, but also maybe about the new technology. Obviously, AI is changing all the time. What we mean when we say AI is changing all the time. Um, So where do you see maybe in in five or ten years' time the technology going? Obviously, on the the flip side, there's lots of stuff around deepfakes and uh, lots of AI generation stuff. So what does the landscape look like? Is it even possible to imagine what the landscape looks like in say 10 years time with respect to policing harmful content online cool I think <laughs> anything further than like 5-10 years is, is tricky for yeah. me to visualise but yeah. I think one kind of like higher level thing um, that definitely has like been on the discussion agenda for the future is like giving power back to the people so mm. much more like personalised content moderation um, where people are more controlling their own digital diet and this is already being seen a lot with our news feeds obviously are algorithmically curated and manipulated and in the same way that things can be pushed to the front of our attention um, that things that we show a dislike to or Mm. things that might cross the line for us into hate speech and not for others being algorithmically deprioritized kind of in this constant re-ranking and reshuffling Um, I think that's one thing greater personalization that we might see kind of in the coming years Mm. Paul, do you have anything else that you think you want to add to that? <laughs> or is it just too distant a time to conceive of? No, I think those were really good points that I would completely agree with. The the idea of kind of more control to users, more kind of surface level decisions at mm. least about what kind of content you want to see. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would certainly hope that to be the case. Yeah. I think maybe it's more of a hope than a prediction. <laughs> yeah. But, well, that's okay. Um, it's, a, it's okay to be a little bit hopeful, hopefully, at least on a podcast anyway. <laughs> Um, so yeah, well maybe, you know, we've, I feel like we've been kind of firing questions at you and you've done so well at answering them. Do you have anything else that you want to say if anyone, you know, wants to follow, I guess we will definitely be sharing your Twitter handles so that they can follow the great work that you do and the great work that Rewire does, but also anything that you think people should know if they're going to listen to a half hour episode (laughs) on hate speech and AI. 
It's tricky. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to make a like like a TLDR of a really complex topic, so don't worry about that. But anything that you're no, kind of... Yeah. I think maybe like very important to always bear in mind kind of the marriage between the technical and the social. Yeah. Obviously, they love that stuff at the OIR. Yeah. <laughs> kind of acting like a poster child now for their, their But yeah, like really important, even if you are a computer scientist tackling these problems, like Paul was saying, in the early days, the paper addressed it from like a very cold positivist like Mm. let's just build these tools without really understanding all of the societal complexities nuances norms everything that kind of feeds into this messy system Mm -hmm. um so i think you do kind of need to wear both of those hats if Mm. you're gonna try and work in the space of online safety content moderation or hate speech detection yes paul anything else (laughs) that you want to add i think i'm really excited about the idea of basically bringing together more academic and industry research on this particular issue because historically the two have been quite disconnected mm-hmm. and I don't think that really works, mm-hmm. to be honest. Like, mm. with all the caveats of working with big tech, like, at the end of the day, a lot of research so far has introduced systems that basically are interesting in a research setting, but there's no direct connection to what Meta is doing today, mm-hmm. what Twitter yeah. is doing today. Yeah. And I think that needs to change. So if you were to get into this field, I think this is an exciting direction, like mm-hmm. trying yeah. to think more about not hate speech detection, but hate speech detection as part of a larger system that you want to design to tackle the issue we care about, which is keeping people safe. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Great note to end on. Yeah, great. Really, really positive, actually. And um, where can people find you? Where would you like them to find you? If you would like them to find I'd, you. I'd like some more fans. <laughs> yeah, well, Same. tell us your handles yes. and we'll drop them in the um, we'll drop them in the, in the notes and we'll make sure that people do follow you um, and also follow Rewire and any important updates that you share. But thank you so much for yeah. joining us today. Um, it's been a great start to our new season. Yeah, great to have guests back on the show to talk about the research that's going on. Uh, in these walls in the OI. Great to be back in person as well. Absolutely. First time in a while. Josh and I usually do this remotely, so it's actually been really nice to see people in person again. Uh, Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. time. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.